0: joy today to be with Dr. Richard Hammer. Among the many things that he is, he's an astronomer and teaches astronomy. He is a uh, attorney, a CPA, a diesel mechanic, a graduate of Harvard uh, Law. He is also a fifth grade Sunday school teacher and it's a joy to be able to talk about how the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and to just get a glimpse at astronomy today. How does a person like you come to faith? I know that you were an atheist and uh, talk about your faith Experience
1: Well, I was an atheist when I was in college. I had no real church background. And my third year of college at a secular university, I met the most awesome and extraordinary and beautiful and talented person I've ever known, my wife. I was going to say, <laughs> it had to be your wife. <laughs> and uh, we started dating. She was a young convert. And all she could talk about was the Lord. So she started taking me to this ramshackle church she attended, where she met Christ. and. You know, it was a lower income neighborhood. Uh, the, the building was in disrepair, but they preached Christ and the congregation was a- animated with joy and love. Everything the public is looking for, they she found in that church. And it, she was drawn by the fruit of the spirit in the lives of these people. And she she just couldn't wait to have me come to church. I was an atheist. I was in a derelict fraternity. What if my fraternity brother see me going into this place? Yeah. It was just a few blocks away. But I, I did. I did require my wife that we would park around the back of the church. Seriously. <laughs> that we did. And so I went in there. And for the first time in my life, I'm hearing the gospel preached. Paul says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I was hearing the word of God Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And over the, the weeks that followed, I lost my capacity to resist And I began to understand what Christianity meant, that that we're sinners, and there's an unbridgeable chasm between the best of human life and the holiness demanded of a holy God. We can't bridge that gap, but Jesus did on our behalf, the perfect sacrifice. I began to understand enough that I stumbled forward at an altar call and prayed the sinner's prayer and my life was transformed <laughs> that moment. I became a new creation. Old things were passed away and all things had become new. I started reading the Bible for the first time. What is this? I'd be sitting there with my wife. Let's read First Thessalonians chapter three. I'd say, what is that? Uh, eventually I understood there were two groups of you know, you know, old and New Testament. Is that in the old or new? Fortunately, the Bible I was using had a table of contents so I could find the book and I'd go to it. But I started reading the Bible and I was a struggling student. Sure. I was not doing well academically because of my fraternity mostly. But uh, I started reading the Bible. I started reading the book of James and I read James chapter 1, verses five and six. If any of you lack wisdom, ask of God and it shall be given. I took that as a promise from God to yeah. me. I pointed my finger on that verse every night in prayer. I wore a hole through it and that's my life verse. I started praying for wisdom. What happened? All of a sudden, I'm getting perfect scores and everything. I go to, I'm a straight-A student. My fraternity brothers said, what happened to you? I said, come to church and find out. And some of them, some of them did. So uh, that, that's what ended you know, me thinking I'm never going to get into law school, going sure. to Harvard Law School. It's impossible. But it happened because of, uh, because of my pr- uh, faithful prayer, according to James 1, that if you lack wisdom, ask God. So uh, God gave me all kinds of wisdom, Sure, not just academic but he gave me a love for his creation and to study his creation. Everybody has a curiosity in astronomy from the youngest child on up. You know, I've had thousands of people at my home, not at one time, but over (laughs) the years, look through my telescopes. And I have discovered that the population of planet Earth falls into two categories. One is about 90%. They'll look at a galaxy through my eyepiece, 100 million light years away. It's just a tiny smudge, a tiny oval of gray light. And they'll look at that and say, oh, that's nice. Where's my video game? But there's 10% that will look at that, and they'll they'll have some dim understanding of what I'm looking at here, and they're transfixed. Yes. It's a transcendental yes. experience for them. I and think
0: that's a huge issue with our culture. They look at the heavens and go, meh. And
1: they should look at the heavens and be in awe. Well, let me tell you why they go, eh. And that's because what are you going to see from the Walmart parking lot? You know, the too moon. Too much noise. There's yeah, too much what we noise. Call, what astronomers call light pollution. One in 20 Americans has seen the Milky Way from a dark location. Wow. So uh, we don't have that sense. So how can you say the heavens declare the glory of God? People look at me and say, well, I haven't experienced that. Well, you can, but you've got to move to a dark location. The way it was when those, when, when David wrote those words on that Galilean hillside tending sheep, he had no light pollution yeah. he could see the but even then he saw at most 2500 maybe 3000 stars and and to say that the heavens declared that that is what i call the telescope of divine inspiration in fact that's one of the verses that captured me as a young believer that, that the heavens declared the glory of god how could david say such a thing he didn't understand he didn't know what the hubble space telescope was going to be right, showing us right. you know thousands of years later but it was it, that's one of the the evidences to me of the inspiration of scripture that that the heavens do declare the glory of God but you wouldn't know it from the, from New York City right It's interesting because population is
0: moving to the city and we're actually moving further away from the heavens declaring the glory that's of that's good. Lord. We're yes. enamored with neon and God's like look <laughs> at the heavens. You said something interesting. You said, I lost my capacity to resist. As you study astronomy and you look at the heavens, how how does that help us lose our capacity to resist God and to get captured into his greatness?
1: It's such a good question. It's just, when you begin to understand the distances, the times, the laws involved in all this. For example, uh, what is the closest star to our planet? Well, of course, it's the sun. But what's the closest star beyond the sun? And it turns out it's Proxima Centauri, which is a red dwarf planet in a, in a triple star system called Alpha Centauri. It's about 4.2 light years away. That's about 25 trillion miles. Our fastest interstellar spaceship we've ever built, New Horizons, is still within our solar system. It, it, it would go a little bit faster. But the Voyager 1, going at about a million miles a day, how long would it take to get to Alpha Centauri, that nearest star to our solar system? Well, it turns out it would be about 84,000 years, traveling wow. at a million miles a day. That's the nearest star. Wow. We call it space for a reason. Yes. You know, there's nothing out there, and and, and so if you blast it off, when Moses received the Ten Commandments, you would have barely begun your journey. Just the magnitude of the universe is what just gripped me. And then the ultimate question: Where, where could all this have come from? And so what I've discovered over the years, astronomers fall into one of two categories. One would be what I call the non-theistic astronomer, that it all just happened. And the reason they come to that conclusion is they don't have any sense of God. They don't believe there is a God, or if there is, he's unknowable. So if you take God off the table, you're only left, the only conclusion you've got is everything happened by blind chance. And from s- nothing. From nothing.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and, and then you have theistic believers like myself Uh, I believe God created. That's what the scripture declares. The very first verse in the Bible, that in the beginning, God created the heavens. That's answered right there at the beginning. That was important to God. Let's get this straight right from the very first. I did it, he's saying. I did it. That's right. And here's what you can handle. That's it. I brought some verses with me that I think are meaningful. For example, Romans 1.18. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Right, when I look at the heavens,
0: I think God is so much bigger than I can imagine mm-hmm. and I'm small. Yes. And I, I can't imagine being an astronomer and looking at the magnitude of this and, and thinking man is big and there is no God.
1: Yes, so uh, I often think about the people, the 150,000 people that will die today, approximately, in the world. And think of those people standing before God, the judgment seat. Many are going to say, including secular scientists, well, how was I supposed to know there's a God? Uh, well, what do you mean, how you supposed You know? Paul answers that in Romans 1, right. that God's nature and power are clearly seen from what he has made so that men are without excuse.
0: Psalms 8, uh, 3 and 4, you're familiar with the verse, but it says, when I consider the heavens and the work of your hands, uh, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him? Okay, again, the psalmist is elevating God and making us realize how small we are, but yet God wants a relationship. Elevate God with uh, the stars, astronomy, what is that
1: telling us? Often when I travel cross country in a commercial airline, I'll look out the window at the horizon, 100, 200 miles I can see. Sure. And I'll put a piece of paper up to the window and try to s- detect any curvature in the Earth's surface. I can't. And yeah. it just gives, you, it gives me kind of the, 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 uh, the knowledge of how minuscule we are as humans. I can't even see the curvature of the Earth that we live on. Right. And yet the Earth is such a small component of our solar system. Jupiter is 300 times bigger. The sun is a million times bigger than, than planet Earth. So we're a speck on a speck on a speck. Right. And that, that is what is often called the, the Copernican principle, after Nicholas Copernicus, the great 16th century mathematician, who was asked to cure the defects in the Julian calendar so that the church would celebrate Holy Days on the right day. He couldn't solve the calendar problem, but he, could, he came up with the radical hypothesis that the way everything looks, the way we believe the universe works is false. The earth is not fixed and immovable, right. as you would think, laying on a blanket on your back in the summer, looking at the summer sky. You would swear the entire universe rotates around us. He said, no, we've got it exactly wrong. Those stars are fixed, and we're turning. And the sun is actually the center of our solar system, not us. That was radical. That was preposterous. Well, if that's true, we're going 70,000 miles an hour. Does it look like that when you're out walking? No. Are you blown over by the wind? You can see the clouds. You can see the trees. They look normal. How can we be traveling 70,000? So it was viewed as absolutely absurd. But he was he was breaking the, the hypothesis that we had lived with for so long. And it, it really has taught me that always be careful in your conclusions, that things are not necessarily the way they appear. Sure. And uh, so it was with Christ, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, here's the son of God. And, and a lot of people didn't recognize. So anyway, we have this Copernican principle that we're, uh, we're not the center of our solar system. So there's nothing special about us. And then fast forward 400 years, you have uh, Harlow Shapley, the great mathematician and astronomer that came up with a, con- he was able to prove that we are not even the center of our galaxy we're Wait. way out on a spiral arm somewhere so we're not in a privileged place in our galaxy and then edwin hubble a few years later in the 1930s discovered the universe is full of billions of galaxies so even our galaxy is not unique so that's the copernican hypothesis uh, that we there's nothing special about us and the non-theistic astronomers i referred to before they love this there's nothing special about us but Scripture tells us otherwise. right? Because the Bible tells us, in Psalms 8, what is man that you're mindful of us, but, Psalm, but in, you fast forward to John three sixteen, 16, yeah. and Jesus said, for God so loved what? The world. The world, planet Earth, Mankind. that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should have everlasting life. So to God, we, we are the only planet in the universe that God loves, according to Scripture. That makes us special. I don't care if we're not the center of our solar system or the center of our, it doesn't matter. We are the only planet God loves. And why is that? Because we're here. And that is such a, to me, a a dynamic truth of scripture. We are special, don't let anybody tell you otherwise, because this is the one planet that Jesus Christ, the Son of God was brutalized, was beaten, was mocked, was spit at. He gave up his throne and glory to come here to save us from our sins. (laughs) I find this
0: when I'm talking when we're talking together, I'm fascinated by this. I, I feel like I'm 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 small and then I'm going out into God's greatness and then I go to small and I find like when I look out, God's big and I feel so insignificant, and then I look at the word of God, I see God's so loving and it's just, it's the big and the small,
1: if, if you can. We know what we need to know. You know, I teach that fifth grade Sunday school class for 30 years. Yeah, I love and, that, by the way. And, and sometimes students ask me a question that, that even stumps me, like where did God come from or something right. like that. And so I, for years, I've had a pet earthworm in my class in a drawer. And in fact, I brought him today. <laughs> Seriously? Uh, his name's Timmy. Okay. And uh, <laughs> Timmy is... Uh, I tell the class, you know, if I would spend all afternoons today, Sunday, trying to teach Timmy 1 plus 1 equals 2, could, would I succeed? Oh, that's impossible. Well, why? Because he's so much dumber than you are. Right. I said, well, what if I put him in my pocket and put his head out so he can see if they have eyes, and if I, I go out to my mailbox to get the mail, would he have any sense of what I'm doing? Oh, no, that, because you're so much more intelligent. I said, that's right. Now, the difference between me and Timmy is nothing compared to the difference between me and God. And for me to think, I can understand all spiritual truth is absurd any more than Timmy could understand calculus. Right. So God lets us know what we want. Yes, there's frustration. We don't know everything. Our minds can't handle it. God made our minds only so, so developed. But we know what we need to know, and that's the bottom line when you look out at the heavens, when you look out through
0: your telescopes, and you have a whole setup I mean, uh, one located on a mountain, and uh, again, getting away from the noise, which I'm fascinated by, uh, when you look out there, what are some things that you just go, wow, God? And what might convince a skeptic or move someone from the non-believing side of astronomy to getting there where the theistic, there's a God. Are there any things that just, bring you to awe moments?
1: Well, for the non-theistic person, and I've spoken to many uh, at my telescope or doing you know, t- uh, speeches, uh, just I think the sheer magnitude of it all, as we alluded to before, where did all this come from? That, it, it's so simple. A child will ask that question. Where did it all come from? Right. Well, it came from nothing. My fifth graders laugh at that. Uh, it's, it's facially absurd. And, and, and I think a growing number of, of astronomers and other scientists are believers. I I know of an astronomer who's a Christian that uh, has written some books in the field, and uh, one of his books was given to a a Nobel laureate in chemistry, and he was an atheist, had been all through his life. He reads reads this book, A Christian's View of of Genesis and and of astronomy, and he, he comes to faith in Christ. He was shortly thereafter diagnosed with terminal cancer, And he insisted that this astronomer come, he was a PhD, and preached the eulogy at his funeral. And and he agreed to do it. 500 scientific literati, some of the greatest scientists in the world were at that funeral. This astronomer gave an unabashed gospel message. And he had many of those people come up to him afterwards and acknowledge their faith in Christ. You know, after the Darwinian experience, I think there is a divide between Christians and science. Right. Christians looked at science with, spe- with skepticism, uh, with contempt. This is, this is going to take us away from faith. That has changed over the last 25 or 30 years as we see more and more bright, intelligent young people going into the sciences, including astronomy. I can tell you faculty at some of the major astronomy undergraduate programs in the, in the, in the world how, there's a growing number of evangelical Christians in those departments. It's one major NASA project has 13 astronomers. I talked to the director last year. She said, every one of us is an evangelical. It's unbelievable. Wow. The Christian, why not us? Yes. I mean, <laughs> why, why, you know, leave the field to the, to the non-theistic? So that's exciting to me, is more and more Christians are going into, the, and, and for the young people watching us in this interview, I would encourage you, don't look at science as the enemy. This is a wonderful tool that you can use to, to, to impact God's kingdom. I had
0: somebody say, why are there so many galaxies? And, and, and we're, if we're just one of many, you know, how are we so special? And the thought that came to me is, uh, I think in creation, God showed us his art. And mm-hmm. I think in the word of God, he showed us his heart. And so there's no limit to art. You know, you'd never say to an artist, you can only create one painting. And is there a need for more art? You know, well, there's no limit to art. And so when I look at the galaxies, I say, this is God's artistic creative side and he just is creating this and that and this and that. And then it goes back to the heart of God right here where we are. Um, Anything in his artwork that just inspires you? Well, you
1: you look at a coral reef in Hawaii, and you look at the diversity of art among these fish. I mean, it's just, it's, it's mind-numbing. Yeah. God is a creative God. Wow, so
0: underwater and into the stars. Yes.
1: Yeah. It's interesting, the first reference to stars in the Bible is in Genesis 1, sure. verse 21, I think it is, where it says, no, I'm sorry, it's verse 16 of chapter 1. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night, and he also made the stars. That is the greatest understatement in Scripture. Yeah. You now, here's the moon, and here's the sun, and he, God also made the stars. To, right. You know, a hundred trillion trillion stars. Yeah, he he also made that. And he calls them by name. He calls them by name. A hundred. Yeah. How many did you say? Hundred trillion trillion. Yes.
0: Yeah, so you talk about an
1: understatement. Yeah. And we don't know how many there are because most of them we can't see. They're red dwarfs. Eighty percent, seventy to eighty percent of stars are probably red dwarfs, subluminous, uh, spotty nuclear reactions. They they're not really visible to us. Uh, by and large. So probably 70 to 80% of stars fall into that category. So for us to say there's 100 trillion, trillion stars, how many are there really? Who knows? And another passage of scripture that I think is so powerful is the second reference to stars in the Bible. That's the first. The second is in Genesis chapter 15, verses 2 through 6. Abram was upset because he's he's 99 years old. He's realizing, I don't have uh, an heir and my estate's going to go to Eliezer of Damascus. And, and God says, come on outside, Abram. Look up at the heavens. Look, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So shall your descendants be. Right. And Abram, he gives the greatest affirmation of faith in Scripture. He, uh, it says uh, that Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So here we see the most central and fundamental doctrine of scripture. And that's the concept of imputed righteousness that comes through faith and belief. We see that resonate down through the passages of scripture down to John 3.16, that Jesus is the ultimate expression of this. By our faith in him, we're made righteous uh, for all time. And, And so to me, here's the first reference to astronomy in the Bible, the second reference to stars, and it's in the context of this central doctrine of imputed righteousness in scripture, which I think is so powerful.
0: So the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And as we look at the heavens, we're in awe and we're amazed. And then it brings us back to the fact that God would love us so much that he'd send his son to this earth to die for us. It, it goes out, it comes back in, and then it's presented to each and every one of us.
1: Mm-hmm. And you don't have to believe it. It's, it's, it's yeah. faith is a gift. Faith cometh by hearing, yes. and hearing by the word of God. Uh, but the more I study science and astronomy, and I'm a college professor, 15 years I've taught astronomy, so I've, I've learned a lot about it. And it's enriched my faith, it's deepened my yes. faith. There's nothing that's, that's detracted from my faith.
0: I'd say to anyone that's out there that's an atheist or resisting, uh, keep listening, keep looking, and uh, my prayer for them would be that they would lose their ability to resist. What a lie. Right?
1: And look objectively.
0: Yeah, look objectively mm-hmm. and see the stars in the heavens. You
1: know, Jesus said, seek and you shall find. That's right. In the Sermon on the Mount. He said, ask and the door shall be opened. Seek and you shall find. Uh, and, uh, but the word seek is in the dirt of present tense in Greek. And, and a better translation, more accurate translation would be keep on seeking until yes. you find. Wow. It's that durative aspect, that continuous aspect. And so that's what I was like in college. I was yeah. seeking. I hadn't found anything yet, but right. eventually I did, and I knew it when I did. And so for those that are listening, maybe that haven't had that journey of faith that we have, keep seeking, and right. the answer will come.
0: Thank you so much for this time. I so appreciate it. It's a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. And I want to say to uh, our, our church and right now that what you saw was just a glimpse of of how great God is and how amazing He is and the fact that He would love you. And uh, what an opportunity for us to respond to that. What an opportunity for us right now to be inspired by the heavens, to be inspired by His greatness, and to have an opportunity right now to be inspired by the fact that He says, I love you, I sent my son for you, he died for you, we can have relationship. Uh, Wow, what a joy for that moment to be real for you. And if you've been resisting, I'm just praying right now today that you've lost your ability to resist. And uh, today at all of our campuses, as the campus pastors come up, I would love for you to have an opportunity to give your life to Jesus and lose your ability to resist. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. God loves you, he sent a son to die for you, and Jesus wants to be your Lord and Savior.